Well, please turn your Bibles this time to Romans chapter 6. I'm going to read some verses here, Romans chapter 6. We come together to study the Word again today. Romans chapter 6. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid, how shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. For he that is dead is freed from sin. Now if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ being raised from the dead, death no more, death hath no more dominion over him. For in that he died, he died unto sin once, but in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Likewise reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that ye should obey it in the lusts thereof, neither yield ye your members as instruments of right unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for ye are not under the law, but under grace. Amen. May God bless his word uh, to our hearts today. Again, in recent times, we've been studying the subject of the ethics of of marriage, particularly the principles of of marriage, uh, that being God's ordained uh, role for men and women in this world, a creation ordinance, again brought about by God for our first parents for their good prior to the fall, and then even now continuing, though affected by the curse of the fall, still given by God for the benefit of society, the benefit of the church, and the benefit of individuals in that sphere. And so we're looking at that particular subject, and of course, at the present time, we thought about the, the real assault upon marriage in our present culture in terms of what is known as same-sex marriage. Again, I reminded you last time of how that has changed so quickly in legislation, even within our own generation. The Defense of Marriage Act, passed in 1996, was intended to prevent liberal states from enforcing their view of marriage upon other states. It was an attempt to defend true Biblically understood marriage, marriage between one man and one woman for life. And yet, of course, 2013, that was struck down by a Supreme Court opening the way for the Obergefell decision, uh, 2015. And then, of course, now in recent weeks, the so-called Respect for Marriage Act, which really is the reversal of DOMA as a plea of legislation. Uh, so by enforcing states to recognize same-sex marriage, so-called from other states. And so that's the context, that's where we find ourselves. And we just very quickly last time dealt with some of the concerns uh, with regard to this particular act. 
Of course, it is ultimately a statement by wider society and by society's representatives that we don't agree with God. And that's the most important thing to remember. We spent some time on that last time. This is a declaration, a public declaration, that we're against God and against His will as revealed in His Word. Of course, there are other problems as well. The state has no right to uh, define marriage. Marriage is pretty political. It's not a political thing at all. And marriage is much more than an emotional bond that is for the benefit of society and the bringing of children into the world, even raising them in the fear and admonition of the Lord. And it is, of course, also a threat, a threat to religious freedoms. But today, before we move on, one, I just want to spend one more Lord's Day, one more Bible class Sabbath school on this subject, dealing in some more detail on the subject of so-called same-sex attraction. Now, I do this because I believe this is a real present danger, even in the evangelical church, and that if we are perhaps going to compromise in this area, it may not be a compromise in advocating same-sex marriage, but it may be in a toleration of those within the church who will identify as being same-sex attracted. And this has been an issue in other wider, larger denominations. The idea you can be a gay Christian, you can be same-sex attracted, but also be celibate. These are terms that are used. It's also known, you may come across this term, it's known as side B, Christianity. Now, I mentioned just a passing comment last time. This has been an issue in the PCA, the Presbyterian Church of America, and it is an ongoing it is an ongoing issue uh, there. Again, a number of years ago now, a church in the PCA, Memorial Church, hosted a conference called Revoice. And Revoice, in many ways, is side B uh, Christianity. And what that term, well, the term came from a, an internet blog. There was side A Christianity, and they were LGBT affirming. So they were Christians, so-called, and they were affirming LGBT in all of its various forms. Side B, they were those who were saying, well, we, are, we, we are those who perhaps are same-sex attracted, but we're going to be celibate. And so we're going to control, if you like, we're going to control our inclinations in that regard. And so we're going to affirm biblical marriage, but not deny our same-sex attractedness. That's the idea. And Revoice was very much a, 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 a a group of people who were promoting that. It's not a, I should say, it's not a PCA group, but the PCA church hosted that. I should also, just for clarity, point out that church left the PCA in recent months. Okay, and the minister there, a man called Greg Johnson, also is still at this present time part of the PCA, but likely will also leave the PCA in coming days. And so it's an ongoing issue. Again, one of the tragedies, just a passing comment is this should never, ever be an issue in an evangelical church. It just shouldn't be a debate. There shouldn't be a need for conferences and discussions and how we feel about this. This should be something that 100% of every member and minister is in agreement. There is no place for side B Christianity, as it's called. No place for it at all. And it is a, a tragic situation that these things come into uh, an evangelical denomination, comes in in this regard, and it gets a foothold. And you find churches leaving over because they affirm this. And they say, well, we're going to leave the denomination because we affirm this particular view. And so I think for our young people and for all of us, it is good to spend a little bit more time digging into some of the difficulties in this area. 
Uh, not only that we'd understand more about this situation and how we would stand against it, but also because it illustrates principles more broadly. There are broader applications that I think it warrants uh, just a few moments today as we have this time of studying together. The last time I mentioned uh, a commission uh, that was under our own presbytery. Again, we had no debate on this, and nobody voted against it, and nobody even questioned it. It was simply a declaration of where we stand as a church. And by the way, that's important legally. In these days, we've got to be very clear. We've got to make it publicly known. This is where we stand on these situations. And as a press bureau, we've got to vote and say, this is our view. And so we passed this uh, declaration a number of years ago now. It was 2019, I think it was. And we passed this uh, situation or this uh, declaration on same-sex attraction. And we made it clear we cannot accept the notion that true believers will be content in identifying themselves as gay Christians. And this is the important line. As the homosexual act is sin, so the inclination toward it is sinful. It's a sinful inclination from a sinful nature. And then we also made this point, though through the work of the Spirit, the inclination of sinners is changed. And that's where we ended last time. We just made those statements uh, without really exploring them in, in any more detail. Well, today I want to bring, present to you, I think there will be six, six problems uh, we could identify with this idea of Christian same-sex attraction. And this one we did deal with last time. He's going to affirm it once more, uh, and then I'll move on. It is this idea of being content with claiming a sinful identity. Now, these are people who are content to make it known publicly, I am same-sex attracted, and I'm a Christian. Now, I'm not suggesting that they are even affirming that that inclination is righteous. I'm not suggesting that. But they're affirming it, and they're accepting. They're saying, this is why I can't do anything about this. It is who I am. But I'm saying that in so doing, they are claiming a sinful identity, and coupling with that sinful identity, the word Christian, the idea of being part of Christ's church. Now, some may say, well, what about Rahab? When you read Rahab in the Bible, you always read of Rahab the harlot. And so there is a sense in which that all of us have a term that describes not our present, but our past. The recognition that you can put whatever you want after your own name. I am Stephen, whatever. And whatever the matter of our own personal sin, there are perhaps several things that we can put after our own name that really describe what we were before we met Christ. But I don't believe that Rahab's title is given to denote her continuing practice. I think it's a matter of what she was. And it's a mark of God's grace in her. And so you, you get somebody coming and they may say to you, Well, I am, I am Jim and I am, or I was a drug addict. That's who I was. But now I'm a sinner saved by grace. You see, the Christian identity is an identity of victory. An identity of triumph through grace. Where sin abounds, grace does much more abound. And what we may declare our past sin... We do it to illustrate God's grace, not God's inability to rescue us from our sin. And so this idea of an identity is very, very important. We saw last time, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, such were, past tense. You wear this, 
but now you're this. You're no longer this any longer. And so that's the issue of this matter of claiming a sinful identity. We all have our own sins. But praise God, they are past. And whilst there may be ongoing battles with sinful temptations, again, as far as our identity goes, those are past terms describing our past before we met Christ. There's also, then, secondly, the issue, now this matter of affirming same-sex attraction affirms that sexual orientation is fixed at birth. That's an inevitable consequence from this idea. I'm same-sex attracted by my Christian, but I can't change it. It's something was fixed at birth. Now that itself is a declaration that has no evidence for it. There's been great efforts in the scientific community to find the gay gene, so-called, and they cannot identify it. There's a project called the Human Genome Project, and a couple of years ago it reported that given all of the studies, and they did much DNA studies, and looking at the expressions of, of DNA and expressions of genetics, they were not able to identify a correlation between a particular genetic change and someone's sexuality and someone's orientation sexually. Of course, in the liberal agenda, liberal media, it was presented, the search goes on. And without in any way suggesting that, well, it was unsuccessful, no, the search goes on, well, there is no identified gay gene. But the issue here, and here's the important thing, if you make the clear, if you make the declaration that sexual orientation is something fixed and assigned at birth, What you're doing is suggesting that heterosexuality is not normal. That's what you're doing. You're making that inference that if you can prove that there's some form of orientation fixed at birth, then you're digging at the foundation that heterosexuality is normal and natural. And of course, that is what the LGBT community want us to believe. Okay, that's that one. Any comments or questions on that so far? Yeah, there's a few. Yep. Yes, Dan said, just again for those who are watching on later on, Dan was saying, though, if we save no sin, we're a liar, we confess our sins. Uh, but in conversation, there is the issue then. Somebody says, well, I was born this way. I think we said last time, we can affirm that to a degree. But this idea that I'm describing here is that this is a fixed thing. And so we would say that the sexual orientation may express someone's sin nature, but the fixed idea of that is suggesting it's got a genetic function and therefore cannot be altered in some way okay that's that's what so thanks Dan that's good uh I'd stay say and Paul and then take George yeah
Yeah, so the idea, the idea of the inability to change is the, is the thing we're condemning. Interesting point, though. Susie makes the point, is this like evolution? I think I said a few weeks ago, this is actually anti-evolutionary. So you believe in the survival of the fittest, you must have procreation for evolution. So you, you, take, away, you take away procreation, you actually you, you remove any evolutionary process. I'm not defending evolution there, I'm just saying this is scientifically contradictory. And so you get people who are, of course, on the one hand, they'll say they believe in Darwinism and they believe in evolution, but they also believe in LGBT. I'm sorry, you can't believe in both. You just can't, you're contradicting yourselves in terms of your thoughts regarding humanity. But I think just to pick Texas's point in a different direction, this is an attempt again to explain sin on the basis of organic science. And so you've got this idea every sin can be described because of genetics. Now, those of you, if you have multiple children, okay, so you've got, you've got several children in your home, you will know that your children all have particular personalities. And I think you'll probably identify that within your home there were certain children who were more predisposed to a particular sin. Oh, somebody was guilty of this more often, somebody else more guilty of this particular sin, and there were differences within their, within their makeup. And so I, I would suggest that there are parts of our personality that are genetically predisposed. And so you may have a particular predisposition to a particular sin. There are some people who, we, we talk, they have a very short fuse. You know, it takes so little to get them to, they blow their top and they go into a fit of rage. But that anger is still sinful. They may be predisposed to it, but the inclination towards anger and the expression of anger is a sin inclination. It's a sin expression, and they've got to repent. They've got to deal with it, and they've got to put it to death. You see that? And so even if there is a potential predisposition towards same-sex attraction, even if there is some sort of, that that's going to be a particular problem for somebody, it does not make it any less sinful even if they do develop in some time some idea of a, a scientific or genetic origin for it. Okay, so that's taking more than your question, but that's a... Okay, yeah. Yeah, visiting the, the idea of kind of this visiting iniquities down the generations, I think that does come into the play in this situation. Um, why, do, why do we fall into particular sins? Okay, there's sin nature. There's then the environmental influences around us, and there's opportunity to sin. So if you have a sinful inclination, perhaps the 1920s, towards homosexuality, your environment was discouraging, and the opportunity was less prevalent. Whereas now, let's say you find yourself and you're, you're born in, I'm not going to name, I won't, I won't name a, a U.S. city, let's say Amsterdam. And you have an inclination towards sexual immorality living in Amsterdam. So now you've got your sin nature, and you've got your environment, and you've got your opportunity and how, how, in a sense, it becomes more and more easy to engage in that sin. And so we find our generation being raised. And, well, why, are, why, are, why is the LGBT community getting larger? 
Well, largely because of the environmental restraints and influence being removed, thereby the environmental thing becomes a stronger influence. So sin nature's there, but now you've got the environmental confirmation. Okay, so I think that's, that's an important thing. I'll, I'll take Paul and then George. Paul. Yeah. That's a great illustration. So Paul's making the point, Matthew, the publican, again, he, and the, the thing is with him, he, we see him leave. He gets up and he leaves. He has a new start. And so it's a wonderful illustration, but he, he does, he refers to himself in that regard. And I think there is, there's a place for us, discreetly. Like you may get involved in the conversation with a young person who, who is, who, who's really falling into sin in a particular area. You may well come alongside that person and say, well, when I was where you were right now, I fell in the same way. And here's how God delivered me and rescued me from all of my sins. So there's a, there's a place for that. George. Yeah, I think, George, to take a couple of points. So Romans 1 is the environmental issue. We're, we're living in this day when God's, God's word's been rejected, people have abandoned God, and God has given them over. And, and the language of Romans 1 is societal. It's not so much just the individual. It applies to the individual. It has this societal sense of a community giving up on God, giving up on God, really worshiping the, the created rather than the creature, and then God abandoning them. And so we, we've got to really pray for our young people going forward. Yeah, yeah George, sir. I'm going, to come back. I'm going to come to this in a moment or two in terms of the power of God to change because it's a major issue with this same-sex attracted uh, idea. But I would, I think you, when you mentioned it, the, the parallel with alcoholism is actually often quoted in the side B Christianity language. Uh, and they will say that, well, you know, the AA kind of idea, uh, I'm so-and-so, I am an alcoholic. 
and this idea of, of always. Now, those, again, who have come into the, uh, under the influence of, of alcohol and alcoholism, they will recognize that it's an ongoing battle. But I think as a Christian, and I think this is sometimes in the, in the Christian service, we say, oh, I'm a sinner. If you're saved, you are not a sinner. Not, not in the strict sense of that term. You're not governed by sin. You're not marked by a sin nature. You've been delivered from that. You've a new heart, a new nature, a new spirit. You're a new creature in Christ Jesus. All of those affirmations in the Bible regarding change. So therefore, if you're going to say you're a sinner, you've got to at least say, I'm a sanctified sinner. I'm a saved sinner. I'm a rescued sinner. Whatever term you want to use, but you've got to put something in front of sinner to describe what you are in your identity in Christ. You're a Christian. You're a believer. Those things are important, and there's a change there. Well, we can fly quickly through some of these latter ones. Here's the point. Denies the power of the gospel. Okay, this is my, I don't know if it's my major concern, but it's one of my major concerns on this issue. And here it's Romans chapter 6. We read uh, Romans 6 together. And it is verse 14. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for ye are not under the law, but under grace. Now here, the same sex attracted celibate may well say, well, this sin does not have dominion over me. I'm able to live a celibate lifestyle. And therefore, it's, it's not governing me. I'm, I'm not expressing my same-sex attraction externally. I'm restricting it. But the point with that is, is that what you see in Romans chapter 6 is the radical change. The reason that sin does not have dominion over us is because we were dead, but now we're alive. It's that radical change that's being denied here. Okay, so it's not so much, Romans 6 is not saying that I still have all of this sin inside me, but I can control it. Right, controlling it is difficult. Chapter 7 deals with that. But the point of chapter 6 is that victory is already been given us in Christ Jesus. It does not reign over us. Now you get to chapter 7, is there still ongoing battles with sin? Yes, and I can see that certainly in the, in the gay community, those who come to Christ, I can still see there being battles with sin in that area. But the issue is of affirming this as being an unchangeable identity. And so there are those, well, you can be a same-sex attracted minister or a member of a church and affirm that publicly. There's also confusion of thought regarding temptation in this regard. Temptation becomes a part of one's unchanging identity and orientation. And so what's happening in this area is that the Christian has to come to terms of living with this temptation. But biblically, when we're faced with temptation, our desire is to pray against it and to fight it and ultimately to put it to death. Not to live with it, but to kill it. And so we don't have this contentedness to live with temptation. Again, Romans chapter 7 is very clear. Paul lives with this dilemma within himself. The good that I would, that I don't do. The what that I wouldn't do, that I do. But he said, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? So temptation is something that we war against each and every day. We desire freedom from every sinful desire. There's also... The issue that I have with this idea of promoting celibacy. Again, these are Protestants who are affirming 
the sacrifice of celibacy. To my mind, that sounds an awful like Roman Catholic views of marriage and singleness. Celibacy, a higher life. And that's what it comes like. You read some of these, these writings, and you get the idea that they view themselves as a higher level of sanctified Christian. That they're, they're able to exercise control in this area, and they're going to choose celibacy as a badge of a higher level of sanctification. Celibacy often was seen historically as people taking a vow, leaving this world, entering into some sort of institution uh, whereby they would live a celibate lifestyle. Marriage, if you think of 1 Corinthians chapter 7, turn there just briefly, 1 Corinthians 7. Because, of course, they will, they will look at this portion of Scripture. And 1 Corinthians 7 does affirm the dignity of singleness, and it affirms the idea that singleness is good, and those who are single can live with a focused and devotion to please the Lord. But look what it says there in verse number 9. But if they cannot, if they cannot contain, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn. And then you see the idea that marriage is given as a help for those who are facing sexual temptation. But if you take away the Bible's definition of marriage as between one man and one woman, then you remove this particular help. And so you get the point where there are those who essentially are burning, but choosing to burn, but not choosing to marry. And you see the confusion with the whole ethic. And so they try to, they try to squeeze their own idea into this. But it's not consistent with Paul's teaching regarding the ethics of celibacy and marriage. Celibacy is therefore seen as faithfulness. But that does not suggest that perhaps marriage, therefore, is a lower form of faithfulness. You see, what you see in 1 Corinthians 7 is not that marriage makes you a lesser Christian. But marriage is given to you by God in kindness to allow you to be the Christian that God wants you to be. Marriage is affirmed. It's not looked upon as a second level of Christian experience. And so some of these things are confusing, and I think we've got to be very careful. The idea of the same-sex attraction idea is that celibacy comes with the sentiment that I can't be who God wants me to be. I'm made this way, I can't help it, but I can't be the person that God made me to be. Just such confusion, such absolute confusion regarding these biblical ethics. One last issue. And here's an important one in a, in a broader sense. It is a false attempt to make the church inclusive. You see, the concept here comes down the line of, well, there's a great increase of prevalence in those who are affirming an LGBT plus identity. And the church, we don't want to exclude these people, and we want to recognize that you can be Christian and also LGBT that the LGBT community are welcome in the church. I would say that's true. The church must be inclusive. But the church must be inclusive without compromising God's standards of ethics and law. We believe in the whosoever. And I think we've got to seek by God's grace that if there is an increase in community identifying as LGBT, we've got to pray for God to bring them into our church. That should be an important part of our, of our prayer lives. 
They, they, are not an, uh, they are not an unsavable community that we can't interact with, we can't communicate with, we can't reach with the gospel. But the whosoever that becomes part of the church is a whosoever that repents to enter the kingdom. You've got to repent and believe the gospel to enter the kingdom of Christ. There's a renouncing of all manner of sins, a rejecting of our sin nature, a rejecting of our sinful expressions, but turning to God in repentant faith. Now here, we need so much wisdom and care. See, living in the age which we do, I think it's inevitable that in the days to come, we will have young people in our churches, at our church camp, uh, or in our church fellowships, who will be troubled and feel that they are inclined in a certain way, in a certain sexual orientation. Somehow, we need wisdom in communicating with those who we raised in our churches. Because what happens at the minute is they believe that they'll be despised and condemned and kicked out of the church and not allowed to be part of the church family or fellowship. That's their understanding. They believe, in essence, we hate them and we have no love for them or their souls. So somehow, we've got to communicate clearly our absolute revulsion of the sins of this world, but at the same time seeking by God's grace to welcome those from the outside and those within who may have battles in this area that we affirm that they can be saved by God's grace. That the love of Christ is for them and they can know the peace that comes from being reconciled to Christ through the blood that he shed on the cross on their behalf. So somehow we've got to work through some of these issues. And of course, that can be said for the sins of our young people in so many different areas. Not just in this area, but this area is so confrontational at the present time. It is so much in your face in society that we'll have to be very careful and wise how we go forward for the, Lord, the glory of God and the good of the Lord's people. Dan, our time is gone, but you want to make a comment? Go ahead, Dan. Okay, let me, get, let me put it. So the question is, somebody comes here as a man and wants to dress like a woman. Do you think we wouldn't deal with that? No, no, no. We, no so, so the, the issue is, same, same put this way. Let's say you get someone who, uh, she's a lady of the night. And she comes in that attire. So she may come once, but she'd be addressed in terms of, please don't dress that way. Okay, so we would, as an eldership, I believe, we would take steps to address those issues. And so if someone came and they were dressed in a certain way, we would, by God's grace, seek to deal with that carefully. Try to. Yeah, so the... That's the issue with the, the, the Respect for Marriage Act. This this idea that are we really protected? And those who seemingly voted for it, they, they voted in the idea, well, this protects, this protects Christians' freedom. I'm not sure it does. And time will tell. The test will come. Listen, I, I am, I'm not going to take this message off the Internet. It's going to be there. If you want to listen to it and hear it, they can do so. 
uh, the last number of weeks. We've dealt with this clearly as a denomination. We've, we've a public affirmation. It was printed in our magazine. It's clear where we stand as a denomination. Okay, there's no equivocation in this area. We are very, very clear on it. Um, but I also did just one final challenge. Those of you who are married, live in a way that exalts the glory of biblical marriage. Because you've got to make that clear. That sometimes we live in a way that, you know, we, we despise the aberrations of marriage in the world, but we do not publicly, in our actions and our words, affirm the dignity of God-given marriage. So make sure you're consistent. You're not against all this. You must also be for what God has given you in His grace and His kindness toward us. Okay, so our time, time is gone. We've gone beyond time. Thank you for your patience. We're not going to come back to this uh, at this point, but may God help us uh, going forward in His will as a church body. Let's all pray. Heavenly Father, we do come before Thee with a sense of our humility. We realize, O oh Lord, that we are all sinners saved by grace. And we pray that as we live in this confused time, that you give us the wisdom to make Christ known, to proclaim Christ clearly, the love of Christ for sinners. Again, the one who ate and drank with publicans and sinners. We pray that as a church, we'd be those who would reach out to a lost world and we'd see sinners from every sector of society coming to know the Lord and to affirm your ethics, O Lord, regarding biblical sexuality and indeed biblical principles in all manner of living and society. So give us grace and wisdom. Give us help, we pray. And may we exalt you in all we would say and do. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.